Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and we thank our distinguished witnesses for being with us today. I'll introduce you in just a moment. Today's hearing will consider whether our foreign assistance intended to promote economic growth in developing countries is working as intended. When Congress passed the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961, economic development was a core priority of our overall aid policy. The Act specifically calls for the promotion of conditions enabling developing countries to achieve self-sustaining economic growth is one of the five principal goals of U.S. foreign aid. Today, 10% of our aid by category goes to economic development. But the question is, can we really say that we are achieving concrete results? Various commissions over the past decades have affirmed an unfortunate reality. Our foreign assistance programs largely lack strategic focus and are not accomplishing their intended objectives as well as they could. More optimistically, there is also a consensus that focusing on long-term economic growth and job creation contribute the most to sustainable development. Our foreign aid policies today seem mired in a Cold War mindset that values buying friends in the developing world over establishing the right environment for foreign economic growth to occur. For us to maintain support at home for these programs, obviously we need to demonstrate to the American people that this assistance can work and benefits our country. And obviously, I think there's a lot of question about that, and we thank all three of you again for, for being, with and share, being with us and sharing your insights in that regard. This hearing will examine how we've lost our way on this important goal of fostering economic growth with our limited foreign aid dollars, and I'm sure you can assist us in helping think about it in a, in a little bit different way. With that, I'll turn it over to our distinguished ranking member and my friend, Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you very much for calling this hearing. Uh, it's an extremely important subject, and I thank our, our uh, panelists for sharing their thoughts in this discussion. I share your goal of getting development assistance right, and I believe we all agree that sustainable economic growth must be a top priority for U.S. foreign assistance. Development assistance is one of the most important tools we have to ensure that we are promoting economic growth, stability, and security in the developing world. It's part of our toolbox for national security. It includes our soldiers and our weapons, certainly the Department of Defense. It also includes diplomacy, but it also includes our foreign aid. And a significant part of our foreign aid is devoted uh, towards economic development. The question is, are we doing it the right way? We here in Congress have laid out a number of clear mandates to guide our foreign assistance programs. The one we are examining today calls for the promotion of conditions enabling developing countries to achieve self-sustaining economic growth with equitable distribution of benefits. Today, we will look at a wide array of programs under the jurisdiction of the committee that are intended to fulfill this mandate. We are here to see whether we are getting things right and what we can do better. I want to make a couple points before we hear from our witnesses. First, I must point out that our foreign assistance is just 1% of the, our budget, but it pays large dividends. It's important to remember with these relatively small investments, we have set goals of reducing maternal and child deaths, creating an AIDS-free generation, and scaling up our investments to combat a host of global health challenges. We must make these investments not just because it's the right thing to do, 
but also because it helps contribute to economic growth and, just as importantly, stability. Second, we must be clear-eyed and remember that fostering economic growth, especially in extremely poor and unstable countries, requires strategic investments and strategic patience. Former U.S. aid administrator Ra Shaw used to say that the aim of our development assistance is to eventually put ourselves out of business. This is achievable in countries ripe for growth, but in other countries such as Haiti or Nepal, the constraints to growth are monumental. It will take time. We do need strategic patience. Third, while economic growth is and must be an important priority, it can be advanced through a variety of programs that contribute to the foundation of a functioning economy. Mr. Chairman, when we look at our own economic success in the United States, still the model and envy of the world, I'm struck by all the many things we do right, the things that contribute to our economic success. At the top of the list, I think we all would agree, are our open markets, property rights, a strong financial sector, the things that we all think of when we th think, talk about economics. But I also think our health care system, our educational system, our ongoing work to make our society open to everyone so that we have the benefit, so everyone can benefit from their own energies and talent is a critical part to the growth of our economy. Take any of these away and our economy is weaker. The same goes for countries where we are trying to promote economic growth. We cannot think just about the important elements of good business climate. If we don't help them fight corruption, and we had a hearing on that last week, and I thank you for that, or to abide by the rule of law, to protect basic rights, that we will never attract the private investments or grow the workforce that is critical to ensuring the long-term success of our investments. Our development programs, such as nutrition, global health, and education programs, as well as traditional economic programs that foster entrepreneurship and help get goods to the market, like those supported by MCC and Trade Africa, are all important contributors to a sustainable economic growth. We know that our governance programs in developing countries help create enabling policy environments that are absolutely critical to economic growth and stability. As we learned last week at our corruption hearing, anti-corruption programs in particular are essential to effectively implementing economic policy reforms. By tackling these fundamental issues, we are getting at the root cause of growth that constrains growth in so many countries. I want to point to Feed the Future as an example of a development program that is getting it right when it comes to fostering sustainable economic growth. And Mr. Chairman, I thank you for your leadership in the Global Food Security Act, which yesterday passed the House of Representatives is now on the way to the President of the United States for signature. Uh, that's a great accomplishment of this committee, and I thank you for your leadership on it. Feed the Future works with the private sector, governments, and civil societies to help countries develop the agricultural sectors to generate opportunities for broad-based economic growth and trade, which in turn supports increased incomes and helps reduce hunger and malnutrition, a major impediments to economic growth. And I hold up the Feed the Future as the gold star because it's also an example of how our development dollars yield compound interest by investing in women. Women make up a large percentage of the world's smallholder farmers, and if women farmers have the same success to resources and land rights as men, it is estimated that the number of hungry in the world could be reduced by 150 million. 
Furthermore, decades of research and experience prove that when women are able to fully engage society, they're more likely to invest their income in food, clean water, education, health care for their children, and by the way, to further build their businesses. This is just another example of the way our development investments are down payments on the building blocks for economic stability. I look forward to examining how we can best support the full spectrum of policies that underpin inclusive economic growth. Thank you so much, and uh, it was a team effort uh, on both sides of the Capitol to make happen what happened yesterday, and it is a great step forward, and I thank you so much for, for everything you did to make that happen. Um, so uh, today we have one panel with three private witnesses with significant experience in U.S. foreign aid programs. Uh, we'll now turn to them. Our first witness is, Ms. is Dr. Jeffrey Herbst. President and Chief Executive Officer of the Museum here in Washington. Our second witness will be Dr. Todd Moss, Chief Operating Officer and Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development. And our third witness will be Ms. Alicia Phillips Mandeville, Vice President of Global Develop and Global Development Practice at Interaction. I want to thank you all for being here. I think you all understand you can summarize your comments in about five minutes. Uh, your written uh, statement will be without objection entered into the record and with that if you would just begin in the order that I introduced you we'd appreciate it and we look forward to look forward to your comments. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Senator Cardin, thank you very much for inviting me to here today on this very important topic. Addressing global poverty is a critical issue right now. In the past 10 or 15 years we've seen massive reduction in global poverty. More people have been lifted out of poverty in the last few years than at any time in human history. Uh, most of that has occurred in China and Asia and not associated with foreign aid. I've concentrated in my career over the last 30 years on the 48 countries of Sub-Saharan Africa where an increasing percentage of the world's poor people, given what's happened in Asia, in poor countries will be. Africa is an increasing focus of U.S. foreign assistance and will be so in the future. At the same time, we've seen two other critical developments. Population increases in Africa will continue. In most countries will see a doubling of their populations in the next 25 to 30 years. And the commodity boom, which fueled high economic growth in the last decade, is over. The role of foreign assistance and well-designed foreign assistance is therefore especially critical. The overwhelming point I want to make to you is that while it is important to focus on the design of our policies and to execute as well as we can, the necessary condition for economic assistance is the political commitment of recipient governments to good governance. If the recipient country is not committed to private sector growth in a dynamic economy, then no matter what the design of foreign assistance is, no matter how well-intentioned the donor, the aid is not going to have a significant effect. It is much more important what they do in many ways than what we do. That goes against much of the thinking in this town where we always think we are the primary movers, but it's critical to understand the governance record in other countries. I should also note that we have often been wrong about the underlying commitment of good governance to countries, especially when the commodity boom of last decade covered up many 
many flaws in many government policies. In Mozambique, for instance, which had been a recipient of significant amount of aid and the aid darling of the international community, we now see that public finance was badly mismanaged during the commodity boom. For United States economic assistance to be effective, we must recognize that uh, if a country doesn't, is not committed to economic, an economic policy which promotes especially private sector growth and good infrastructure development, nothing else really matters. The design of U.S. economic policy is complex because, of course, it goes hand in hand with other aspects of U.S. foreign, foreign aid. As the chairman noted, economic assistance which concentrates on growth is only one component of our overall foreign aid portfolio. As a result, we often face conflicting priorities uh, between economic growth, governance and democracy, investing in people, disaster relief, and other priorities worthwhile that the U.S. government has. It's therefore very difficult at times for managers and executives in AID and elsewhere to make decisions to allocate aid solely on the basis of good governance. If we are to have an economic policy which allows for a sunset of foreign assistance at some point, that we somehow get out of this business, then we will have to first make sure that we and recipient countries agree on the metrics necessary for improvement. There is only something of an agreement now, and a consensus is often missing between what the donor wants and what the recipient country is actually going to do. We will also have to have the discipline to reduce aid if we believe that the consensus is violated. So far, I would say over many years, we have, in, we have evidenced only a partial discipline in cutting aid when countries violated their express commitments because there are bureaucratic initiatives to promote and continue aid and because there are many other priorities of the U.S. government. Overall, as my time is running to an end, I would say to you that the world is in fact awash with aid at the moment. The problem is not that there is not enough foreign aid. Over the last 10 years since the Glen Eagle Summit, many Western countries, including the United States, have increased their assistance, and China and other actors have also come on board. Aid is, in fact, chasing projects which deserve to be funded. The question going forward is, can we manage that aid so that it only goes to those recipient countries that have a good governance record? Thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Moss. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to highlight ways the United States can be more effective in supporting private sector growth and promoting economic opportunity around the world. Uh, I proudly served in the State Department, and I continue to work closely on global economic policy issues uh, at the nonpartisan Center for Global Development. Uh, I have three points today, and this draws largely on my work at CGD with my colleague Ben Leo. Uh, first, it is development finance rather than traditional aid that is the future. Aid is the right tool for tackling health challenges and for dealing with humanitarian crises, but aid has been much less effective at generating broad economic growth. However, when carefully targeted, aid can be useful in addressing very specific barriers to business and issues in the enabling environment. 
Uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation model, which uses five-year compacts to explicitly attack constraints to growth, is a great example of doing this. So too are the U.S. Treasury's technical assistance programs, and also USAID's uh, very laudable coordination of the Power Africa initiative. Yet it is development finance, or the deployment of commercial capital for public policy purposes that is the most potent weapon we have for expanding markets and for spurring private sector growth. When the United States wants to encourage job creation in Tunisia, when we want to catalyze infrastructure investment in Nigeria, when we want to bring Pakistani women into the banking sector, we turn to development finance. And development finance is the future because of the changing global landscape. Many previously poor countries are much richer today, and they're looking for more than aid. They want to partner with the United States to deliver jobs and roads and electricity. Development finance is the future because of the rise of China, India, and other emerging powers. These countries, along with our traditional allies in Europe, are already using development finance to bolster their influence and to expand investment opportunities. The United States has made a start but we risk falling further behind. Most of all, development finance is the future because of who we are as a country. Americans believe in a model of private sector-led capitalism, our deep capital markets, our culture of entrepreneurship, and our belief in free markets all provide a unique platform for using development finance to promote prosperity. Now, fortunately, the United States already has a very good development finance institution, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Since 1971, OPEC has provided political risk insurance and largely debt capital to, to private sector projects around the world in support of US foreign policy and US development objectives. And for 38 years in a row, OPEC has returned money into the US Treasury. Our recent analysis at CGD has shown that OPEC has been investing principally in the exact sectors that are the leading constraints to growth in developing countries. Those are infrastructure and access to finance. While some have worried that OPEC could become a boon for large US corporations or could encourage corporate welfare, our recent analysis of OPEC's portfolio has shown this to be patently untrue. Uh, instead, we find that less than 8% of OPEC commitments over the last five years have involved any of the Fortune 500 companies. My second point is that while OPEC is small and high-performing, it could be even better with a few tweaks that Congress could enact at no additional cost to U.S. taxpayers. Chief among these reforms is allowing OPEC limited authority to make equity investments rather than being restricted to only issuing debt. Many projects in the riskiest markets where the US government needs OPEC the most are at a stage where they require equity, not debt. And nearly every other development finance institution in the world has equity authority. OPEC is an exception largely because of a holdover from a rule during, uh, during the Nixon administration. Another simple reform that would bring large benefits at no cost is multi-year authorization. Large, complex infrastructure projects take years to negotiate and implement, yet OPEC has been forced to rely on annual authorization since 2007. A final minor reform that would allow OPEC to, would be to allow OPEC to retain a slightly larger portion of its profits 
to add staff to clear a big backlog of potential projects. OPIC does not need more capital. It needs a few dozen more people to deploy that capital. Uh, the agency covers more than 150 countries, yet currently has only about 200 staff or less than what we would deploy to a mid-sized embassy. My final point, if the United States is serious about promoting market solutions to poverty and insecurity, we need a modern, full-service U.S. development finance corporation that is worthy of the world's largest economic power. In the annex to my testimony, Ben Leo and I provide a series of options for how Congress could structure just such an institution consistent with broad bipartisan support and budgetary realities. A U.S. development finance corporation could bring OPIC into the 21st century by consolidating all the existing tools and instruments that are currently spread across multiple federal agencies and enable their much more strategic deployment to promote private sector growth. If we fail to update our development finance tools, the United States stands to lose out to other countries on potential opportunities. We would also be neglecting one of our most powerful levers to support prosperity and stability abroad. Modernizing America's development finance tools would cost nothing. It would bolster our fight against the remaining pockets of global poverty, and it would support our most pressing national security goals. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Mandeville. Uh, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to speak today about U.S. economic assistance and the pursuit of inclusive economic growth. Um, I'd like to recognize on behalf of Interaction and its members the leadership of this committee with regards to foreign assistance in general. We recognize it as a vital part of our values abroad and our national interests, and so I want to thank you for that. I should also say up front that Interaction is an alliance of about 180 different US-based nonprofit organizations that are working around the world, both in humanitarian and development settings. Um, and our membership's views are as diverse as our membership itself. Uh, so my remarks today should not be construed as reflective of the views of any individual organization. I'll take responsibility for them myself. <laughs> um, with that said, and recognizing the written testimony has been submitted for the record, I'd like to make three brief points. The first is to call out that over the last several years, we've seen increasing evidence that if we want targeted economic assistance to be effective, we need to put economic analysis at the center of things. And that is possibly the most deadly boring statement that you'll hear, so let me give you an example that'll bring it to life a little bit and show you why that's important. If you look at several landlocked countries in West Africa, it's obvious that a major constraint to economic growth is the high cost of getting goods from point A to point B. And if you visit any of these countries, you'll find that if you look at the road system, they're narrow, don't hold modern trucks, they're two-lane, there's no bypass in case of an accident, and they're uh, in a condition that suggests slow speeds are the way to drive. So if you went and you looked at this, you could conclude right away, well, this is an infrastructure problem. If I want to reduce costs, I need to make an infrastructure investment. And we'd be right, but only partly. Because if you follow the economic analysis down into what's actually driving high transport costs over one particular transit corridor, what you find is that in the first segment, the problem is that there are three different ministries allowed to set up safety checkpoints. And so you've tripled the instances for graft, and you've slowed down speeds by, by threefold. And if you look at the second segment of the transit corridor, you find that the single greatest problem in terms of cost is that there's a trucking monopoly. So if we'd acted at before the analysis level, we would have done the high dollar investment in infrastructure, but missed the thing that is actually constraining businesses' ability to grow by moving goods from point A and point B. So if the first point is that economic analysis matters and matters dramatically for targeting assistance, then the second point has to be that we have tools available to do this, that we've, deployed, that we've seen them deployed more and more frequently in the cases of U.S. bilateral assistance, and that they can be deployed more often as well. 
Um, in this category, I'd put things like growth diagnostics, which is what I just described, looking specifically at the items that either constrain or drive economic growth in a particular geographic area, um, but things like basic cost-benefit analysis as well, which tell you a lot about value for money over time. I'd also put in this category something you've already moved on through the passage of the Foreign Assistance Transparency and Accountability Act. Um, and that, by that, I mean rigorous and transparent monitoring and evaluation practices. Um, Transparency and rigor in monitoring and evaluation not only tell us, account, give, provide accountability, have we done through a program what we set out to do, but they also tell us lessons for the future. What should we do more of? What should we do less of? Point three is one of context. Um, economic, assistance, uh, economic assistance is one part of the broader U.S. foreign assistance portfolio, which also includes things like security assistance, humanitarian relief, democracy support. And all of these are things that we hold dear as advancing U.S. values abroad and our own national interest. When they come up, I think people tend to talk about them in terms of their own intrinsic merit, and I wholeheartedly support those intrinsic merits and the case for that based on them. What I want to elevate in the context of an economic conversation, though, is that sometimes making investments in things that don't immediately appear to be economic can have positive economic consequences and outcomes for the very economic goals we've set for ourselves with the economic assistance. So for example, if you look at measures to prevent stunting, preventing stunting also prevents long-term uh, mental and physical impairments that can uh, haunt a workforce for a generation and fundamentally reduce productivity levels. So preventing that outcome is wholly growth-oriented and actually very favorable economically. Or if you consider programs that are designed to promote social accountability. Social accountability matters dramatically in cases of pandemics when you need citizens to trust their governments enough to follow health instructions that they're being given on a popular basis. Um, and following those instructions not only prevents the spread of a disease, but prevents economic losses over time. So as you look at ways to make sure U.S. economic assistance is maximally effective, I'd ask you to bear in mind that there are some investments that the United States makes through other vehicles or other instruments that don't appear to be immediately economic that have intrinsic value of their own and are supported by the American public. Um, Americans give something like $15 billion a year to charitable causes abroad. Um, but sometimes these investments also support the very favorable economic outcomes that we've set for ourselves through the economic portfolio as well. Um, with that, I thank you for the opportunity to speak and I look forward to our discussion. Thank you. I might ask just a couple of questions and then move on um, and then interject some. But in a sentence or two, could each of you uh, tell me the purpose of the United States uh, giving economic assistance to other countries? Seriously, in just a sentence or two. It should be about trying to generate economic opportunity, uh, but all too often it's trying to do lots of things at once, and therefore you wind up not achieving any of those goals. So just very briefly, but, just but, but now you're more than a couple. Okay, of I'll stop there. Yeah. Okay. I think it's been to show that the United States is committed to a broad range of goals across a broad range of countries. Actual performance has taken backseat. Ms. Mandible. I believe it's to support actual generation of economic growth and also to demonstrate our commitment to the factors that drive that growth. Okay. So you think it's to, sh Dr. Herbst would say to show, and you would say to create actual. Um, I, I, I mean, it does appear that much of what we do is to, to, to gain influence, and I think all people who serve on this committee, generally speaking, support us being involved around the world. I mean, that's the purpose. 
So we're not, but it, it does appear that much of what we do is, is you say actual. I think Dr. Harps will say we've been in, uh, it's been a t total failure in sub-Saharan Africa, would you, or a, a major failure, or? I, I'd say the actual performance has been well below what we might think is reasonable. It varies from country to country. Some countries have used that aid well, yeah. but I think there have been a lot of disappointments along the way. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Do, we, do you think, as we begin at the top, when we look at economic aid, beginning the purpose, do you think that we have done a good job of ourselves internalizing what the purpose is and then ensuring that through all the activities that we carry out, um, that, is, uh, that is carried through? No. Um, according to the State Department's own rubric, we have over 20 sub-goals uh, in five different categories for our foreign assistance. By the way, I agree, all of those goals are laudable. However, the notion that they're all aligned, that uh, all good things to go together, seems implausible to me. And so we face confusion internally, and we confuse our recipients also. Yeah. Any other comments before? I would just add that I think the Millennium Challenge Corporation is a pretty big exception to this. It's pretty clear about what they're trying to achieve, and the metrics that they assign to their compacts are aligned with what, what the goals are, and that does not apply to a lot of our other assistance programs. And I would uh, agree with that. Dr. Harps, if I, if I could, uh, you said something that I think was probably surprising to most people in our audience and here, and you said the same thing in our office when we met a few weeks ago, but. Your, your comment was that the world is awash in aid, that aid is not uh, something that uh, we, you would think, based on the types of crises that we deal with around the world, that that would not be the case. But, but uh, you believe that the fact is there's a vast amount of aid that's being delivered, uh, probably more so than even is necessary at, at, at present. Well. More would be useful if governance uh, was better and recipients could perform better. But since the mid-2000s, when there was a commitment on part of the Western countries to increase aid, aid has increased massively. The number of non-Western donors, China and the like, has come on board and increased. The absolute number of poor people decreased. Uh, on the ground, when you're talking to aid officials, American or otherwise, in my case, in a variety of African countries, they find it very difficult uh, to deploy all the aid that they've been given. If the governance records of the countries they were operating in were better, there would be more projects. But they find it very useful, very difficult in many cases, to allocate aid which they believe will have a high impact. They face other bureaucratic imperatives, of course, to spend the aid. Uh, but they find it very difficult to spend it on projects which they believe are worthwhile. And if I could, um, we obviously have gone through a period of time where the fiscal situation uh, in the West, generally speaking, has hugely deteriorated, right? I mean, um, balance sheets in developed countries have gone negative, not positive. What is it that's driving uh, the fact that there's so much economic, so much uh, assistance that's available to countries around the world, what's driving the, it going in the opposite direction, if you will, of what's happening domestically within these, uh, these countries? Well, Mr. Chairman, as, you, as I think the ranking member mentioned, the actual percentage of 
our budget going to foreign assistance is very small. Uh, it's bigger in other Western countries, but it's hardly driving the fiscal problems. I think the increased fiscal commitment has come through a, uh, a, a really uh, human values commitment that uh, we should try to do more to address poverty. That's laudable. Execution of that laudable aim has proven to be very difficult. You want to say something? Yeah, I think also that um, we need to distinguish between foreign direct investments and private capital flows and uh, public support that is provided through direct through overseas development assistance. Um, in that, uh, private capital flows tend to focus on uh, economic opportunities and uh, business opportunities that are not necessarily always public in nature. And so there is a portion of the economy which can grow, but in terms of long-term sustainable, inclusive economic growth, it can be hard to marshal those kinds of forces for the type of broad-based investment that's needed. If you think about kind of uh, base public infrastructure as opposed to the infrastructure at an industrial park. Um, that said, as a result, I think that in instances where the United States has taken a specifically economic focused approach, um, like the Millennium Challenge Corporation, made a decision that is targeting a particular um, uh, economic outcome, a level of return on investment, and stayed the course over a, a period of time, over a five-year duration, that's when we have seen success in terms of actually contributing to the economic growth. I'd agree that that doesn't necessarily characterize all of our assistance, um, but I do think that in the last several years we've seen not just the MCC, but other parts of the U.S. economic and foreign assistance portfolio uh, pick up some of that same analytical and selectivity uh, elements of their investments. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, once again, thank you all for your, for your testimony. I'm following up on the chairman's point in your testimonies. And that is there seems to be a common theme here that the way that a lot of our development assistance has been handled over a long period of time is layering additional programs upon or commitments upon commitments spread thin around the world uh, to show our interest around the world since we're a global um, power. And... Uh, with little accountability and little expectation that the, there will be a strict accountability on the use of those funds that they serve there. Uh, the difference with the Millennium Challenge Corporation grants is these are pretty defined specific commitments where you have pretty defined achievable goals and they're pretty well competitive from the point of view that there are not a lot of them around the world and we can, and there's significant amount of funds. So for all those reasons, it's, it's a little bit easier to get the type of results we're talking about. I would suggest that in the health arena, PEFAR was a similar type of commitment where we could see specific results from a significant commitment where the U.S. dollars were dominant, at least in starting the programs in these countries, and it's the same thing on the specific projects under the MCC. Uh, the other development programs aren't quite as easy to follow. So Dr. Herbst, following your point, and and uh, the, the point that was made by Ms. Mandeville uh, on accountability. I, mean, I couldn't agree with you more that if there is corruption and you can't get the good governance, you should pull out of a country rather than just continue to uh, pour money in, which is not going to get the return for the investments that we're making. Uh, so we passed, as Ms. Mandeville pointed out, uh, the... Uh, Foreign Aid Transparency and Accountability Act. It's now in the Senate. It requires the president to in the House. It requires the president to establish and implement guidelines with measurable goals, performance metrics, and monitoring and evaluation plans. 
It also requires public um, information on the internet by the secretary on these individual uh, projects. Will this help us in trying to establish more accountability and transparency in these programs? What is your confidence level that this could make a difference? I, I do think that um, uh, things which encourage not just rigorous monitoring and evaluation, but also transparency of them, um, basically require learning. So if, uh, I think in general there can be a first mover problem associated with publishing the results of work that you've done. If you're the only aid agency that's showing how effective your work has been um, and no one else is showing how they're doing, then anytime you don't hit 100% success rate, it's very, there's, it's difficult for you to continue moving forward. Um, you know, we look at the success rate of small businesses in the United States at, at the five-year mark, 50 to 60 percent of them have shut their doors. Um, but if you have a foreign assistance program that's at less than 100 percent, then um, accountability-wise, people are very concerned about it. So I do think that requiring accountability and publishing of the results and the analysis underneath it will fundamentally improve not just um, what that single agency itself does, but actually ability to learn across the portfolio. Dr. Herbst, I'm going to let you respond. We all know it's challenging politically to cut off funds. And there are reasons why economic assistance is given to countries other than the specific purpose for which those dollars are made available. Uh, will, can transparency and requirements of more direct expectations uh, help us in trying to get greater governance use uh, changes in these countries? I'll have to admit, uh, despite the good work of this committee, that I'm skeptical. First, to the extent that money is fungible, governments move money around, you're not necessarily funding the project that the check goes to. You're funding the least, the lowest priority project of the government because it may have funded that project, the aid recipient project itself. You're freeing up money for project, for, you're freeing up money to go to other projects or to other but wouldn't purposes. Wouldn't the transparency perhaps demonstrate that and therefore if there is proper oversight not just by Congress, but by NGOs, that with more transparency, we could get to the point where I agree with you. I'm prepared to cut off funds if we're not getting the intended results and if we don't have governance improvement. I think that level of oversight is very difficult. I think that we underestimate the degree to which we're played by our aid recipients. They read our legislation. They follow these hearings. They're very sophisticated. They provide us with what we want to hear. I think going down the path of ever greater accountability, websites and the like, while it's appealing, it suggests a basic lack of trust between the donor and the recipient. And I would be more comfortable being able to say, we trust this recipient government to use the money in a proper way. I'm afraid ever more, ever more measures, websites, investigations, I don't know if that isn't a rabbit hole down which we'll go, uh, where we just try to make ever more observations on a relationship that we fundamentally that don't believe in. Yeah, well, if you look at past history, we've been continuing the program, so I'm not sure. And I think you and I would both agree that there are many countries that are receiving that that uh, are not, wouldn't qualify if it was our dollars directly going into these countries. I, I want to get one final question to Dr. Moss, and that is, uh, your, your point on um, uh, leveraging uh, the private investment, I think, is an extremely important point. 
uh, and, and a lot of the programs that do that are working fairly effectively. OPEC, your, your suggestions there are ones that I hope we will follow up on because I think they make a great deal of sense. I just want to get your assessment on one of the programs that does that is the Global Development Lab in that it leverages the private sector engagement with, with the NGO engagement with the, with, the, with the U.S. funds with local efforts. Uh, is that a model that could be improved or is that a model that's working well? I don't have any great insight into how well that's working, but one of the things that we have seen is a lot more experimentation. I think the frustration that the committee has with some of the ineffectiveness of our aid programs in the past has one of the good things we've seen is a lot more uh, testing of new models, piloting things, trying them out, and um, marrying that with, with good evaluation so you ha at least get a sense of did this project work and what can we learn from it. So I think it, as part of that effort, that's, that, that's been positive. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Chairman, um, thank you to the witnesses for being here and your time and testimony today. Uh, Dr. Erbst, in your, in your testimony you state that, uh, and I quote, it must, be, must first be noted that economic growth is not the primary goal of U.S. foreign policy. The largest component of bilateral assistance is devoted to global health, notably to support treatment of HIV AIDS. Um, do you make that statement because you think that's the right priority? Is that the wrong priority? I mean, should we be doing more or less uh, in terms of economic assistance? Uh, that priority reflects uh, the priorities of, uh, of the legislative bodies and the president. Uh, and so I take it as, uh, as important to the U.S. If it came about because of a global health emergency, obviously, in the last two decades. And that program did save the lives of a significant number of people. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I'm not sure how many other U.S. programs we could say about it. So I applauded the uh, development of the program, and I think that money is relatively well spent. I just don't think we should then say to ourselves that economic growth is the highest priority. Over time, as the senator and the ranking member said, I think there is no escaping the conclusion that economic growth is the fundamental necessary condition for all of human improvement, uh, that we can address other issues, they're important to address, but if countries don't have a sufficiently high rate of economic growth, none of the other improvements we hope to see is, are going to occur. But the HIV crisis was unique, we understand that, and, uh, and the U.S. money was allocated accordingly. Thank you, Dr. Erbst. And I recently had a chance to, to visit uh, Myanmar, Burma, with a number of our colleagues. Uh, we talked about the urgent needs that they face in terms of economic and development assistance uh, to help make sure that the new democratic government can succeed. Uh, according to the State Department's 2017 budget request for Burma, uh, U.S. efforts, and I quote here, U.S. efforts aim to strengthen political reforms, advance the national peace process, expand economic opportunity, and improve the health and welfare of all the people of Burma. And I think these are obviously very important topics that I agree with, but wonder if, if we are properly aligning uh, these efforts to address the most urgent needs in Burma that would result in immediate deliverables for the new democratic government. We also met with a number of uh, key leaders and supporters of Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, and we talked about what success looks like for uh, the end of the five-year period of this administration. For instance, according to the Asian Development Bank assessment in 2015, per capita electricity consumption in Myanmar remains among the lowest in Southeast Asia, reflecting poverty level per capita incomes 
and an electrification rate of only 31%. Lacking electricity, most rural households burn firewood and animal dung for lighting and cooking, causing widespread acute respiratory problems. Yet the, 17, uh, the fiscal year 17 request does not speak to any initiatives in this area. So uh, which economic sectors do you believe should be the near-term priority for U.S. development initiatives in Burma? And this will go to all, all the witnesses, if you'd like. Maybe then the, the right place to start in that, and I will confess to not being an expert in this particular, in, in Burma in particular. Um, but it, I think this is a space where it's thinking about both efforts to actually promote actual economic growth and the conditions which in the long term support economic growth. And so I think that is, those are the right pair of questions to ask around how to prioritize the investments. What are the, if, if you're looking at it from an economic perspective, what are the things that at this moment for the next three to five years, these are the, the characteristics of that economy that an investment does alter its ability to have a, a stronger growth path. But in addition to that, there is a question about what sustains those conditions, or as conditions change given the world around it, given the country itself and its own changes over time, um, what supports those conditions in the long run? So I think there's probably two stages to the investment. And given what you just said, can we more effectively utilize existing state and USAID programs or can we better use them as they are today or do we need to change course and establish a, a new program for Burma itself? Uh, in, in my view, and again, not, uh, not being a specific expert in Burma, this is something where um, I think USA's more recent adopt, uh, adopting of country-specific strategies, which dig in quite deeply into a variety of aspects about the different things that the U.S. government is supporting over time in a country, um, be they economic or other, is, pos is probably the right place to start thinking through this, which suggests that it also, uh, these strategies also allow both state and USA to look across the tools and instruments that they can use and bring them together. And so I don't know if you want to answer the next question or perhaps uh, the other two as well, but it kind of leads into what you were saying or it builds off of what you were saying uh, with that country-specific approach that, that we have been developing through our aid dollars. Is something like the Power Africa initiative, uh, could that be useful to assist uh, the needs of Burma as we talk about the electrification rate and economic, assess economic development? those kinds of things. Would that be a good approach to develop sort of a prescriptive uh, power Burma kind of approach? Uh, not, again, though I've been to Burma, not being an expert in it, I will say that President Obama was right to point out that electricity was a primary constraint to economic growth uh, and that infrastructure development, which the aid community has had an ambivalent relationship to over many years, uh, is is an absolute necessity. So if we or others are not going to be part of helping Burma grow its electrical power generation, assuming that it can do so efficiently, uh, that is going to be a major constraint on growth. And we've seen that elsewhere in the developing world also. Thank you. If you look at what the Power Africa Initiative tries to do, which is, and this was Alicia's point, you start from an analysis of what, what's holding back electricity. What is it that the U.S. could do? Is it put a technical advisor in a utility? Is it provide some political risk insurance to a, a private power producer? Is it investing something in the grid? It's starting from an analytical base and then figuring out what tools we need to bring to bear. That, that approach, I don't know if you need a White House initiative for it, but that kind of approach would certainly apply in a country with a 31% uh, electrification rate. Thank you. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. There's no question that uh, Electrify Africa is one of those things that can make a massive difference in people's lives. Over 50 million, we hope, in the next four years. 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa without electricity. It's hard to have economic growth, hard to have health care, hard to have education without electricity. And the way this is construed with very little from the standpoint of U.S. actual dollars is fascinating and a great model. And I appreciate Senator Gardner's leadership on all things Asia uh, and his focus uh, in that regard. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, both uh, for convening this important discussion and for your real leadership of this committee. Uh, I was pleased to see the Foreign Aid Transparency and Accountability Act uh, just passed the House, uh, and the Global Food Security Act has also passed the House, both of which I hope uh, will be signed into law by the President soon. It's a reminder of the, the solid, sustained bipartisan work done by this committee. You've been, um, you've been involved in a lot of good things as a freshman senator from... The small state Delaware. of Delaware. That's right. Uh, very small state. <laughs> no, no longer freshman, my, my good colleague, uh, Senator Shaheen, reminds us all. But, and Electrify Africa was one of the things uh, I was proud to play some very small role in. Um, like many members of this committee, I'm, I'm a strong believer in the potential of U.S. foreign assistance, uh, not just to provide vital, even life-saving uh, support, but also to strengthen our leadership role in the world, uh, but also believe that U.S. taxpayers uh, shouldn't be committed indefinitely uh, to assistance without reasonable metrics for its impact and its outcome. Uh, and there are ways we can and should work together to strengthen uh, the transparency, the accountability, and the impact uh, of our aid. Um, I've been particularly impressed uh, with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, its metrics-based approach. Uh, and uh, later today, I'll be joining some House colleagues at an OPIC event uh, presenting awards at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, to companies that have made uh, real progress through OPIC. So let me ask two questions. Uh, first, if I might, Mr. Moss, about uh, Electrify Africa. Um, the Obama administration's Power Africa roadmap is very ambitious, 30,000 megawatts, 60 million connections by 2030. Um, and yet uh, we've heard that in some countries, uh, business leaders I've met with don't feel that the governments are taking advantage yet of the strong incentives uh, we've offered. There has been real progress towards a more market-based approach in some of the most uh, active and engaged countries, competitive tenders, uh, deregulation, uh, but I'm concerned about meeting this aggressive uh, timeline. Um, is it structured, the Power Africa Initiative, the right way to achieve um, this roadmap? Um, is it possible, this is what I think Senator Gardner was asking, to replicate this model in confronting other development challenges? And how do we get the public and private sector to work more closely together in addressing key challenges like power? Uh, th thank you for that, that question, uh, Senator Coons. You know, I think that the general approach of Electrify Africa Act and of the Power Africa Initiative, which is, which is to try to tackle, what, tackle the barriers kind of one at a time in each country. In Nigeria, the problems are very different than in Liberia, and we're going to need different tools to help countries get to their ambitious uh, energy goals. Um, I don't know whether the 2030 is, you know, it is ambitious. I think it's, a, it's, cer it's certainly achievable under certain, certain conditions. I'd say what my principal concern about it is that it relies on an extremely ad hoc set a coordination mechanism that I worry will not last into the next administration. There is no, unlike uh, PEPFAR, there is no strong home that's going to carry on the work of Power Africa. 
uh, in the same way, you know, the, the team at USAID, I think, has done a tremendous job. Their roadmap, I actually was expecting it to be a, a government whitewash. I thought it was a really honest, terrific, analytically solid document. I've been very impressed. But if Power Africa and Electrify Africa is going to be sustained through 2030 and reach these ambitious goals, it needs, to, it needs a bit more political heft. It needs to have a home. Uh, and I'm definitely worried that, that in, in, in the next year or two, we could see a lot of that momentum lost. I've heard both from governments in, in Africa and from uh, people in uh, power sector uh, executives uh, that some of that early excitement has been lost. The summit's over, it, we're toward the end of the administration, there's a natural tapering of, of, of energy. I am worried that that won't get sustained. Well, let me ask one follow-on question about OPIC, if I might. You suggest in your testimony OPIC should be able to make equity investments. Um, why equity, and what's the difference in terms of leveraging uh, private capital, and why would that, at, as you say, no cost to the taxpayers, significantly expand its reach? So it, it's, it's kind of a, a wonky answer, but when, when, you're, when you're crowding in lots of investors, say, in a, in a power project, um, and most of them are coming in with equity, uh, OPIC is forced to come in and by statute has to issue first-tier debt, which means they have to get paid back first, which means you've just aggravated all of your other partners, and it actually means that OPIC often has to, it gets pushed out of deals um, and is not able to, to leverage that in the same way. It's just a, it's a flexibility that you would want, especially in the poorest countries. When you look at development finance institutions uh, like the Germans, the Dutch, uh, the British, in the poorest countries, they're doing almost entirely equity, very little debt. And the U.S. is just unable to have that, uh, that capability because of this rule that goes back to the Nixon administration. One more question, if I might. Mr. Herbst, if I might, I just, um, I, I was struck by the, the forcefulness of your repeated statement that the world is awash uh, in aid. Let me make sure I hear you right. Did you mean relative to the amount of human need the world is awash in aid, or did you mean relative to opportunities to make clear, high-impact investments that will have a positive outcome, the world is a Washington Because I- the, la the latter. I just don't want those uh, mm -hmm. who might be watching or listening to get the mistaken impression that there's just huge amounts of excess aid. Given 65 million refugees, uh, I'm struck at just how much human need uh, continues to spread into previously unexpected places and ways. Um, and I think one of our biggest challenges now is confronting um, that humanitarian uh, work and sustainable development need to blend in ways they haven't previously, that we're confronting a generation of refugees living outside their home countries for 10 or 20 years, and we need to look differently at how we do emergency response uh, for refugees and how we do sustainable development. Ms. Mandeville, you have any closing comment on that convergence? No, certainly, and I think actually um, this uh, goes to a question about how, if, if part of our challenge is identifying the opportunities where resources can have the most impact, um, then I think that there's, this goes actually to a question about uh, the Global Development Lab and some, something that both the Global Development Lab and MCC are good at, which is structuring the way it thinks about 
a new undertaking or a new investment. So that there's a point in time where you ask the question about whether the counterpart government or the recipient government has undertaken the policy steps it needs to for your own investment to proceed and have solid impact. And so I think this actually supports this point that you know, generating growth is not just about what the United States can bring to bear. It's also about what the country uh, picks up and takes responsibility and brings to bear on its own. And so um, something that Global Development Lab does quite well and MCC does quite publicly is to make this point that uh, if you look even at Power Africa investments, the uh, power infrastructure that MCC is invested in, um, there are tariff reforms associated with that. There are regulatory body reforms associated with that. And they're politically difficult for many of these countries to undertake. But it's when we pair them together that we're able to identify, given the possible things that we could direct our resources to, this is one where both parties have skin in the game. Thank you. Thank you to the panel. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you. Thank you all very much for being here. Um, and I'm sorry that I missed your presentations, but so I think this question may be for you, Mr. Moss. I was at a, a presentation this morning talking about the success of enterprise funds after the fall of the Soviet Union and some of the Eastern European countries. And can you talk a little bit about what was it about those funds that made them a success and whether there's the ability to duplicate that and should we be looking at enterprise funds again as we think about some of the need and some of the places that we're looking at? So I, I have not looked in detail at the enterprise funds. However, there is a kind of general consensus among the development community that the initial fund in Poland was a great success right. and we have yet to see that replicated ever again. Uh, the Southern Africa Development uh, Enterprise Fund, the post-apartheid um, post fund, was a total disaster, a complete washout. Um, I know that some of the other funds that have been tried have not worked out. Uh, part of that, I think, is that they're not structured in a way that allows, uh, you're essentially making venture capital into very, very risky markets. There's some reason you need to even organize that. Um, and there are going to be a lot of losses. Uh, as Alicia mentioned, you have to have a very, very high tolerance for loss uh, for venture capital to work, and you have to give the fund the, the autonomy and time to make those investments, and you hopefully, maybe you only have a 20% hit rate, but those, that 20% makes it worthwhile. Uh, USAID, as an agency, is not structured in a way to allow that to happen. They're in a one-year, no failure, no corruption, no problem mindset, in part because of congressional uh, hammering. Right. Um, and so I've actually been much more impressed by the private equity funds that have been seeded and started by OPEC. Um, where they will provide up to a third of the capital for a fund. They've done this very well in African infrastructure. They'll provide a, a, up to a third of the initial capital. If the third-party fund manager can go out and raise the other two-thirds, uh, and they're given 10 years to go do that. And that's actually been a, a much better model. And OPIC, because of its structure, is just better set up for that uh, than USAID. Um, well, I know that we've been talking about Africa and Asia. I, I happen to be the ranking member on the European Affairs Subcommittee, would, and there are still pockets in Europe, the Balkans in particular, where there is significant need. Um, so talk about the model that you've seen that you think may be more, or maybe it is the same model, but maybe may work better in a place like um, Europe 
the Balkans where, where they have different challenges than Africa, and I don't know who wants to, to try and respond to that. Uh, I spent the first part of my career at NDI working in the Balkans, so maybe I should go first. <laughs> um, so I think that um, in some ways it comes back to the same question about taking a country strategy approach. Um, and one of the things that characterizes the Balkans is its proximity to an extraordinarily well-functioning, uh, a highly dynamic market. And so that has to be a fundamental piece of how you think about what countries in that space what sustains their growth when they're in that context. Um, and the kind of, I think, relevant maybe Africa example then, or com comparison's not the right word, but a point to make <laughs> would be, um, if you think about uh, the way people invest in economic opportunity and growth in Lesotho, which is surrounded by a dynamic South African economy, it is much more focused on how you think about uh, labor force development, ability to uh, work inside of markets that are around it and work with markets that are around it to take advantage of, of comparative advantage. Um, so I think that, that kind of lesson would probably be uh, one of the best starting points. Um, you talked a little bit about the connection between um, incentive for reform and assistance. Can you talk about how the two are connected? Now, I appreciate that there has to be a commitment in country to make those reforms, but how, how important is it for us to tie our economic assistance to the need to reform in the countries that we're supporting? I think that there's kind of two different types of assistance, and one um, is most effective when it's quite closely um, connected to policy reforms undertaken by countries, and the other is what it makes sense to do when it's not possible to make that tie. So um, to be more specific, I think that when we think about large-scale investments that have a macro effect, um, large-scale infrastructure, uh, things that would require over the long time regulatory reform or anti-corruption efforts in order for them to be practical, in those instances, and like I said, this is something both MCC, MCC does well and Global Development Lab does well because it's an agile technical approach, right? Um, is to look at what is the point by which if, if a certain paired reform is not in place, the rest of the investment makes less sense. Um, MCC does this well by looking first at the policy environment as a whole in the country, but even inside investments also looking at the specifics of regulatory reform and will our investment have a return if they don't put this in place. However, there are countries where, which are fragile where we still care about economic activity for the population. And we may believe that it's not, po it's not as possible to have high-level economic growth outcomes, but we believe strenuously in supporting economic activity and income generation outcomes. And in those spaces, that's where I think it's, uh, it's more important to think through what allows for economic activity at a community or regional, a local level, um, and put uh, support behind programs that reach to that space. Thank you. I would I would be more skeptical of the latter programs. I think many of the poor, fragile countries uh, that Ms. Manville mentioned are that way because of a lack of reform over time. Uh, and that while we can't ignore human suffering and destitution as a country and as a people, I don't think uh, that countries that, even poor countries that don't take basic reforms will get themselves out of the trap of being poor and fragile. And I think we've seen this with Haiti uh, for a very long time now. So I don't think that the level of economic development should at any point give country immunity uh, from us looking very carefully at what senior leadership government officials are doing. They may be asked to do different things and the bar may be lower, but I think that all countries should be on a reform trajectory. I assume you would feel differently about countries that are in the midst of a crisis like Syria or Iraq? Well, I don't think there you're talking, 
in those countries in Syria a functioning country uh, at the moment. So I think that those are different. But if you look at a country I know fairly well, Zimbabwe, where I've been on and off for 30 years, they are in the midst of a crisis right now that has come about because of lack of government reform. Uh, and we will continue to give food aid and other things because we care about the people there, but we should be under no illusions that it was the very government's policies that got them into this spot in the, in the first place. Thank you. I'm, I'm actually out of time. Okay. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And uh, we thank uh, the panel for joining us here today. And uh, we thank you for your expertise on ways that uh, our foreign economic assistance can more effectively advance the growth of prosperous societies around the world. Here in America and throughout the developed world, uh, internet access has been an, an enormous driver of economic growth. According to a recent Boston Consulting Group report this year, the internet contributed an estimated $4.2 trillion in annual growth to the economies of the G20 countries, adding between a 5 and 9% to GDP. But in February, a report from the Alliance for Affordable Internet found that without immediate and urgent action, the world will miss the newly agreed global goal of universal internet access by 2020. And on current trends, the world's least developed countries will only achieve universal access by 2042. Even then, persistent income inequality within and between countries may mean that millions of people will continue to be priced out of participating in the digital revolution. Uh, in the modern era, uh, the internet is like oxygen uh, to the economies of every single country and every single individual within those countries. So the United States has multiple tools which can lead in this area, including the State Department's Global Connect Initiative, USAID's Global Development Lab, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, to name just a few. Uh, can you give us from your perspectives, how you view the role that the United States can play uh, in pushing along this agenda and ensuring that universal internet access is something that can be realized by uh, every country on the planet. Uh, Dr. Moss. I know this isn't a very Washington thing to say, but I don't really have a strong view on that. Um, I, I think a lot of the countries that I deal with, internet access is, uh, is far from the top of the list of people's priorities. Um, a lot of the countries I'm, uh, I, I work in, uh, you know, less than half of the people uh, have any meaningful electricity. Uh, and so internet is, is uh, something that people aspire to, but uh, would not be, you know, would not be, a, would not probably not make the top five. I realize there are lots of markets where that's, that's not the case, um, but I think the others are probably better place to say. Okay, yes, sir. Uh, I'm pleased to report, Senator, that the museum, in conjunction with ITI, the Internet Trade Association, is now conducting a project on expanding broadband access across the world. Uh, and we convened our first meeting, which included major technological companies as well as ambassador-level representation of a variety of countries. And we'll be having our second meeting in conjunction with the uh, October World Bank meetings. 
I take a somewhat different approach uh, to my friend and, and agree with you, Senator. I think uh, broadband access has become the fundamental avenue for free expression in the world and uh, is the link to the world economy. Uh, our perception after talking with companies in a certain number of countries in a project that's still going on is that regulatory and political obstacles in developing countries are first order problems and that financing is a second order problem. Uh, that there is money out there, some from official, a lot more from the private sector, uh, but that the fundamental issue uh, when you look at countries where, and countries at the same per capita income level do have different levels of broadband penetration. Some of that is geography, but some of it is regulation. And I think the role we can play is in providing models of how governments can regulate or deregulate their telecom sectors uh, to allow for uh, the kind of universal access which I think is going to be absolutely critical uh, for the future. There are going to be further developments in mobile uh, that are going to make this easier, but are also going to raise the stakes uh, because the first, uh, because the developed world's infra internet infrastructure is advancing at such a rate that if the developing world does not get into this race, the di actual digital divide is going to get worse. Ms. Mandeville. Yeah, I, I would agree with Dr. Herbst on the a point that um, there's a lot of private capital, I think, interested in this space, um, largely because it is a big piece of how they move it through economies as well. Um, and so I think the question then to ask about what's the role of, of thinking through U.S. assistance in terms of what it provides to increase accessibility, universal access, um, moving into spaces that are more remote and not just urban centers, um, is to really ask the question about what is either, it, what is the role of kind of a, influencing uh, and impressing for regulatory reform that allow for universal access, that allow multiple types of providers. Um, this is, a, I was at a, uh, spent a year at a tech company prior to joining Interaction, and this is a space where lots of people are very, very interested in how they reach markets in other places, specifically through the internet. And so thinking through what we do that leverages that interest, that leverages that force is really critical. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, when I look back in 1996, when we passed the Telecom Act of 1996, not one home in America had broadband in February of 1996, not one home. 20 years later, for a 12-year-old, it's a constitutional right to have a 50-inch HD screen. Okay? They can't even imagine life without it. But for those people in 1996, it was unimaginable that there was such a thing as HD TV. It was such a, that the, that the screen could be interactive, that there could be a wireless device that they're carrying around in, a, in their pocket that is as powerful as the computers that put a man on the moon, but it's in their pocket now. So, so to a certain extent, I just think that the United States has to help these countries lift their gaze to the constellation of possibilities for their own people through the dissemination of, of technology. So yes, on the one hand, electricity is important, and that's what Power Africa or Electrify Africa is all about. But electricity is just a means then to make sure that all these other devices that actually transform the country uh, into a modern economy, into something that their younger citizens can compete, is absolutely essential. And so in 1993, there weren't any phones like this. They were the size of bricks. They cost 50 cents a minute, and Gordon Gecko had one in Wall Street. Okay? But by 1996, we had innovated, and boom, we have one of these. By 2007, people have one of these. And 600 million people in Africa now have one of these, but the United States had to be the leader. 
We are the ones ourselves that had to get out of our own rut, the black rotary dial phone and a, a phone in your own pocket, absolutely unimaginable. Now we wake up in the morning and our first thought is, I can't forget my phone. I gotta have it in the car. I'm going to work. Well, those were not thoughts that anyone had up until 15 years ago in our own country. But yet we can't leave behind all of these people in the developing countries uh, without having access to essentially the global economy, the skill set you need in order to be able to expand. And then, like the United States, or like the 600 million people in Africa right now, it happens overnight. So you need to kind of power Africa, but you also have to internet Africa. You have to internet uh, South America, their villages, and let these young people have these opportunities. So uh, towards that goal, I just think that we should work, you know, together to try to accomplish those goals because I think that's the most powerful democratizing capitalistic you know idea that we can have in, in inducing you know a different kind of way of thinking that uh, serves as a proper counter to that which seeks to pollute the minds of young people across the planet I thank you all for everything you do I thank you Mr. Thank you. Chairman thank you so much I appreciate it so I know there's some additional questions I, I uh, want to get to sort of the essence I think of of what this uh, hearing is really about. I, Ms. Mandeville, you kind of represent the aid industrial complex, I guess, at the intersection. And uh, in fairness, um, as I travel around the world and all of us do so extensively, so many of our ambassadors tell me that we really do have a Cold War model that is tremendously ineffective and that most of what we do as it relates to aid is wasted. So the reason we're having this hearing is to ensure that that's not the case, and we certainly appreciate the work that the people you're a part of do. We really do. But I think it's, it is an outdated model, and, and uh, Senator Markey was expressing some, some outdated, some reference to outdated things, but it's a problem. And I think Americans, it's just like what's happening in our country right now. I mean, there's tremendous upheaval because, uh, you know, structures of government aren't exactly responding to things in the way that people would like to see the same thing we know is happening in aid, and yet we support being involved. So, um, you know, uh, Dr. Herps would talk about the fact that, in essence, we're pushing rope when we send money to countries that aren't going through the reforms that need to occur, it's wasted money. I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to, the things that we want to see happen are not going to occur. Dr. Moss, I know has talked a little bit about uh, uh, development finance, and I know our office is looking at, at ways of really increasing that so that you're focusing, and maybe diminishing some other things, so that you're focusing on things that are actually going to have an impact. And I just wonder if you might respond to what I just laid out and the concerns that we have from ambassadors all over the world that represent us that know that much of what we're doing really is just about buying influence. It's not about economic growth. It's not about affecting people's lives in an appropriate way and how you might respond to what so many of them say to me that are out there on the ground that that's a big part of their life. I mean, it's what they care about. It's what they're administering. Uh, thank you. Um, and uh, I think that um, there are spaces where um, I agree that trying to achieve certain types of economic outcomes in environments where governments are not willing to take reforms that fundamentally affect those outcomes 
is not, cannot be successful at the level that we hope for. Um, I spent nine years at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, often sitting across the table from prime ministers and ministers of finance and ministers of infrastructure, um, explaining to them why I was very sorry, but they were not eligible because we had not seen the level of policy reform and commitment that was required. But that doesn't happen in the other areas of assistance. You had the freedom at the Millennium I Corporation to, to make a difference, to make sure that whatever you did was transformative. Right. On the other hand, what we're doing at USAID on a daily basis is doling out money that's making no difference in many cases, and they don't have the same mandate that you had at the Millennium Corporation. I, I also would say that um, nobody wants to be implementing a program that they don't feel like is having impact. People go into development or humanitarian work because they want to affect people's lives. And whether they're an implementer on the ground or they're in the headquarters or at, their, at USAID, nobody wants to be in that position. Um, I well, do well think, let me I just ask you this. Does the aid industrial complex, though, that, that you're associated with, does it create resistance to change that might migrate dollars away to other things that would be more effective? I think that I think we need to tolerate learning about what is effective. And I, think I think the answer, though, is somewhat yes, is it not? I think that in the last five to 10 years, we have seen more and more uptake of selectivity and analytical rigor in terms of deciding what's going, what works and what doesn't in various places. I also recognize that within our uh, economic assistance for portfolio, 40% of that assistance goes to three countries. I can't speak to how those three countries affect the overall effectiveness of the portfolio, because even if you're extraordinarily rigorous in every other country on that portfolio, three swamp it. So I, I do think that, um, we have seen over the last five to 10 years more and more ad adoption of this notion that you have to be selective up front. You cannot work everywhere on everything. Um, I do think that kind of change takes time. Okay. Dr. Moss. So if we take my colleague's testimony, which, which I know it's boring, but I, I agree with, with their opening statement. So if we take Jeff's premise that you, you have to focus on countries that, where there's a political commitment and governance is at least uh, good enough, and we take Alicia's um, idea that, um, that targeted economic analysis is what will allow you to make smart choices and make good investments. If you put those together, that means the, the US government needs to be both highly selective and highly disciplined in turning off things when they don't work. Now, there are some experiments that work that way, but our budget process does not allow us to behave that way. Now, some of that is because um, because other goals, like the State Department, as, as you suggest, likes to, I work there, we like to spread money around because our job is to make friends and one of the tools is the aid, aid budget. It doesn't help if we're trying to get a, convince a country to send peacekeepers to turn off their, the, our, our, our aid program. Of course the State Department would fight against that. Um, so you've got other goals, you've got the budget process, which is often, there, there's no zero budgeting. You often start with what was last year and you spread it around a little bit differently, but there's a huge amount of inertia. And then there's also a big role from Congress. There are so, much, so many earmarks in the aid budget um, that there's very little flexibility for, uh, for, um, for officials to say, you know what, it's not working in Kenya, so we're gonna move it to Tanzania. That is virtually impossible within our system. So that's why you get these experiments like MCC, like the Global Development Lab, that are trying to do it the new way, but the old standard aid program run out of USAID, it just isn't allowed to operate that way. 
You want to make a closing comment before I turn to Senator Cardin, Dr. Harps? Uh, I just note that, as Senator Markey said, we've seen a revolution in telecommunications across the world, including in much of what we call the developing world. Uh, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars have been invested. Business practices have changed. Lots of people have been brought online in poor countries. Almost none of that had anything to do with foreign aid. Uh, that was because governments made smart decisions, um, and we saw the same thing with the mobile phone revolution beforehand. Governments made smart decisions, foreign investors found markets uh, that were applicable. I think at all times we have to ask, why are we investing this money uh, when the government of the day or, or investors, private or foreign, uh, can't do it? There can be good answers to that, uh, but I'd agree uh, with uh, Dr. Moss uh, that selectivity and a, and a portfolio which is more concomitant with the resources we're willing to develop and devote uh, is necessary. Uh, I also believe, while I think analytically Dr. Moss is right that it's hard given all our constraints, a few exemplary cases where we walked away or took highly disciplined measures would send an important signal both across our government and across the world. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Well, first, let me, let me, let me just, I mean, I agreed, as I indicated earlier, that we need to have accountability. We're not doing our country any favor if, it, if we give them aid and it's not being used for its intended purpose and there's not on a path towards good governance. But as I said also, the amount of, uh, of resources we're putting into economic development assistance is relatively small. And then when you take out the three largest countries, it's really a small amount of money that's being put in dollars. In uh, the three major countries, the reasons for those aid, of course, Jordan is one, and I think most of us would say that there's been a pretty good return to the United States and what we've done in Jordan. Uh, the other two countries that receive uh, a significant amount of aid, uh, Af Afghanistan and Pakistan, there's a reason for that. Some of us question those reasons, but it's, it's not just <laughs> the direct economic assistance. Uh, so uh, there's a, I don't think it's quite as simple as to, to try to take a look at this. What I said in the beginning, we should look at what has worked and, uh, and what, what is our best chance to improve governance or put a country on a path towards good governance. Um, and I think the MCCs have been the, a really good model, and I think we should need to build on that. I think PEPFAR has worked well. From, from the countries I've visited with the PEPFAR, it's made a substantial difference. They know that the United States was there, and there's a generation now appreciative of what we did, and we have a much more stable countries where these clinics have been able to produce uh, the health results. Um, and what has not worked as effectively and the chairman really alluded to this, and some, some of you have also, and that is, are we prepared to really hold a country accountable by either reducing or eliminating their funds? And that's very difficult in our political environment. So we've used, let me make a couple suggestions. We've used the appropriation process to put conditions on aid. That hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. I think this committee, could be helpful if we could get into a regular practice of State Department authorization. We could help the authorizers and we could then take up some of these issues and we could look at what tools uh, work. So I know we're working on that and the chairman has made that one of his top priorities and I strongly support that. 
I also believe that suggestions have been made about leveraging private-public par partnerships are good uh, to deal with OPEC reauthorization and reform. I think their, their suggestions would make a great deal of sense and things that we could do to make a difference. And I also think transparency is critically important. I understand skepticism of how it would be used, but without transparency, it's very difficult to get everybody on the same page. So I'm, I'm all for the transparency. I'm pleased, pleased that we're being able to deal with that. But I think this panel has raised a lot of good questions and some good, good uh, areas that we could advance that would give us a better chance to achieve our objectives of really transforming a country's economic capacity uh, of, through the use of the U.S. Uh, engagement. So thank you all for your testimony. Thank you. Senator Shane. Thank you. I, I just have one question, but before I... I ask, and I, I want to make a point, Dr. Herbst, that I very much agree with the conversation that uh, you all were having with Senator Markey about the importance of access to um, broadband and internet technology. And I hope that as you're thinking about that at the museum around the world, you're also thinking about it in terms of the United States because there are parts of my home state of New Hampshire that don't have access to affordable broadband, and it's having a significant impact on their development, and I know that we are not the only state in the country with that problem. So at some point, it's unfortunate that we are not looking at rural broadband access in the same way that we looked at rural electrification, because certainly that would make a significant difference in a number of the rural areas of this country. Um, now, but to go to my question, the last visits that I've made to Africa, to parts of the Middle East, what I've seen has been significant investment by China in those areas. And as we look at the influence that that gives to China, um, you know, EU has also made investments in other parts of the world. Are there other countries that are providing assistance that are being more successful than we are, and are there models that we should be looking to? I'm not suggesting that China is one of those models necessarily, but, but are there ways that other countries are doing this investment that is more successful than what we're doing, and who should we be looking to? To whoever wants to answer that. I don't think so. Except that I would say that the United States, as the superpower, is burdened by the broadest portfolio, both in terms of number of countries and number of sectors. If you look at the Nordic countries, for instance, their portfolio geographically and in the sectors they're involved in is much narrower. I think that gives them an inherent advantage uh, in executing their policies. So I don't know that they're any smarter or any more capable than us, but I think the global responsibilities that have so rightly influenced our aid uh, portfolio has made it especially difficult uh, for us to execute. I think other d donors have an easier time of it. But certainly I've had Lots of conversations with almost every Western donor uh, where they'll tell you an unhappy story. And I'll also tell you that you can go back 50 years now and read uh, exhortations that aid donors should coordinate so that they would, should learn more, uh, address the sectors they're best doing at, and that has essentially failed for five decades now. 
I would add just that I think partly the answer to this goes back to the very first question around what should be the purpose of economic assistance. And the, to my mind, that is still to both generate actual growth and to support the conditions that generate growth. And I do think we do a very strong job of thinking about some of the conditions which support growth. Um, and vis-a-vis, -vis, for example, Chinese investments, which have tended to be more infrastructure, which is immediately apparent, but right. does not necessarily incentivize a reform process on the part of the government that, that's receiving it. Not sure China wants to incentivize reform. I suspect there's some other incentivizing going on. <laughs> I would just add, you know, there's actually quite a broad range of countries involved. You know, India is very involved in sub-Saharan Africa, Malaysia, the Gulf states, um, Brazil. Um, so it, it's definitely much, much broader than just U.S., China, sure. Europe. Um, I actually, I would agree with Jeff that um, that there really is no other model that fits the American, uh, you know, with the way that we, we operate. Our, you know, it's absolute folly for us to try to mirror or to compete with the Chinese with what they're trying to do. Their model doesn't fit with the way that, that we view business and the, and the distinction between private sector and the state. Well, given that, and, and given that you all mentioned the expanded role of American leadership in the world and the, the interests that we have around the world, is it realistic to think that we can focus our aid assistance in a way that accomplishes what I understood you to say? Uh, are we really going to be able to cut off aid to people who aren't, um, who aren't doing what what we think they ought to be doing in terms of reform? I mean, is that really realistic? I think it is, but we'll have to look at the internal incentives that we provide to our aid agencies, both at the personal level and at the, at the governmental level. I think that if you encourage uh, and set the right incentives uh, and regulations internally, uh, then that's possible. We have certainly made demands uh, of other countries in other areas and walked away from them. Uh, in the security sector and, and in other areas. So I do think it's possible, but we have to be much clearer than before about uh, our, pro our preferences in terms of encouraging actual performance as opposed to showing the flag, as opposed to deploying other types of influence. If we're clear on what we want, I believe we can have the same discipline as, as we've demonstrated in other areas. I think this is where the selectivity piece that Dr. Uh, Todd mentioned earlier really matters. Um, I think we can uh, credibly be clear about the expectations both on investment on our side and policy reform on a country's side um, when, it, when we are selective about where we're using that approach. And that is one of the reasons that I think MCC has been able to walk away from countries when they backtrack on reforms or when they don't take the steps that they're supposed to. So there's a, there's a proof case that it's, it's possible, um, but I would agree it's probably not possible everywhere. But, but I guess you all, all would agree that um, we're looking at humanitarian, humanitarian assistance in one way where it's probably not something that we want to think about in terms of walking away and the kind of economic assistance that most of the discussion is focused on is a different pot that, and we should be thinking about it differently. Absolutely. Thank you. I would agree, although humanitarian assistance can also be given more or less effectively. Um. 
Um, uh, Senator Cardin needed to go to another hearing, and I just wanted to pursue a couple more questions if, if you all have time to answer those. Um, Dr. Herbs, you wrote in a 2013 New York Times article, you made the point about the growing role of private capital. Um, can the three of you all respond to the impact of difference that's occurring between what countries are doing around the world to help with economic aid through government entities and, uh, and then relatively uh, the impact that private capital is having doing the same thing? Private capital is having an impact on more and more countries. We'll see how it works out through the commodity post-commodity boom session, but private capital is often more attractive uh, than official aid, bilateral, multilateral, because it's not loaded with the same conditions uh, that we rightfully or wrongfully add onto many of ours with regard to take your pick, role of women, poverty reduction, climate change, environmental degradation, or lots of other admirable things, but which complicate the situation. So if a government is looking to place paper, uh, it might quite often want to place it on private markets. We're also seeing a world awash with capital. It's not only awash with foreign aid. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of capital out there looking for high returns. And increasingly, those high returns come from emerging, or as they say, frontier markets, uh, where returns can be quite high. Uh, and finally, we're seeing a diversification of the private funds, no longer only from Western Europe and North America, but increasingly from Asia. Not only China, where it's very significant, but we'll see increases in um, India, Malaysia, Singapore, and the like. So those will provoke, I think that's almost entirely good news uh, in that uh, there will be more capital uh, that will be available to more countries. It will mean that we have to recognize that our own place in this is increasingly diminished uh, and that we will be only one actors among many and the capital we're willing to deploy, especially given the particular distribution of our aid, is not very high and set our expectations accordingly. To me, this is just the world becoming uh, more normal, uh, that Africa, Asia, and other places are able to make commercial and economic ties yeah. with other places. We'll just have to recognize uh, that our impact, given what we're willing to invest, is going to be less. I, I would just add that, you know, I think pri obviously private capital and the greater flows we can get into these regions, the better. Um, but Private capital is already highly selective and highly disciplined because they're focused on a rate of return and nothing else. The United States government, if you asked us what are our objectives in Kenya, I will bet this room could come up with 50 different objectives that we have in Kenya. Uh, it's not a simple rate of return and if we don't get X, we're out. But that, if you're a bond trader, that is exactly what you can do. So I think we want to encourage it, but it's not going to meet all of the U.S. It's not going to replace all of the other things that, that, that we hope to achieve. Ms. Yeah, Mandeville. To, to that, I agree with Todd, and to that I would add that I think um, the inflows of private capital demonstrate an ability to sustain economic growth, um, but they have to, they, they need to be preceded by the conditions that support private capital inflows. And so whether that is support for regulatory reform, small business climate, uh, import-export regulation and, and trade capacity, um, I think those are the things that uh, as we see larger and larger private flows 
seeking high returns in some markets, there are still a large number of countries with large numbers of people living in poverty where it's not yet a, a high return environment. And so in those instances, then the role for, for US economic assistance becomes what is possible that cultivates the environment that can attract private capital in the long run. Mm -hmm. How concerned should we be, uh, you know, we, we constantly, you know, people always refer to China and their aid, and of course their model is very different, very focused on infrastructure and Chinese jobs. Um, there are, you know, other models that are out there, but has there, how much concern should we have? I mean, I mean if a country is coming in and helping a, an impoverished country increase its standard of living, is, is, there, is there a reason that you can share with the American people who are tuning in why, why uh, you know, we should want to be competitive in that regard, or should we let, as some people might say, let them deal with that country and maybe we focus on other places. Can you give an explanation uh, for people that might be listening in? So I think in, in general, Chinese investment in, in developing countries is something that the, that the United States should welcome. Uh, these countries, especially given that the, there's a concentration in infrastructure and the infrastructure gaps, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, are so huge, we actually need the Chinese uh, investment in there. Um, I think there are two big exceptions here. One is that um, there has been generally improved standards of economic transparency uh, and better governance. Some kinds of Chinese investments can undermine that. For example, uh, lending uh, without disclosing the terms is a problem. The other is that there are occasionally rogue states where we would rather see those regimes starved of capital and isolated and the Chinese uh, are willing to, to, to do business with, uh, with tyrants. And Zimbabwe, uh, thank you, Jeff, for mentioning that already, uh, is one, uh, one example of a country where Chinese engagement with uh, Zimbabwe is counterproductive. I'd agree, I think, in general, uh, for the recipient countries, having more suitors, as it were, more potential investors is a good thing, and the creation of infrastructure stock uh, that the Chinese have focused on has filled the gap which Western aid agencies walked away from. Uh, in some ways, invested less in infrastructure. I think there are some worries. Uh, Chinese have a, a different model that goes back to the fact that it's not a capitalist model, fundamentally, and concerns about governance in particular, which should animate much of what we do, are largely absent, um, not only in dealing with rogue states, but in private deals with government leaders and the like. So I think uh, there is a real concern that the Chinese may uh, cause governance to decline in some cases, and we'll have to be very attentive to that. I think we also face, more generally, that there is a Chinese model of development uh, which says that democracy, human rights, later or never. Uh, apropos of their own experience. Uh, and I think that that message as Chinese involvement on the ground in dozens of countries becomes more significant, that message is becoming louder and is part of the explanation for the erosion of democratic performance that we've seen over the last 10 years. And I worry about that greatly. Mm -hmm. Very good. 
Ms. Mandible. Um, I would just add, kind of from a market perspective, the idea of there being a competitor in the provision of assistance always tends to produce better, uh, better results by the initial provider, right? So I think to that extent, and not only is the actual investment helpful for many countries, but it, it does force us to look at what we're doing and ask questions about what we're doing effectively. Um, I think uh, Chinese assistance also throws into relief where the U.S. is working in partnership with another country in pursuit of economic growth um, and where the, uh, our partner country is perhaps not as committed to the reform side of the equation in that um, in the absence of there being an alternative, the conversation around whether reforms are going to happen or not drag, can drag on and on, and I have seen it do so in, in certain investments. Um, when there is another alternative to go to for assistance that doesn't have the same regulatory or democracy or other concerns attached to it, um, some countries are willing to say, that's fine, I'm, I'm gonna go here, and then you know. And that's, uh, while not necessarily uplifting, I think that is a practical way to think about how we understand working in partnership with countries in, in uh, cultivating the types of policy environments that sustain growth over time. Let me just go to a whole other extreme. I, you know, we're all impacted by the people we see around the world as we travel, the ambassadors in particular that have been around for 30 years and have seen a lot of things, a lot of the same things uh, occurring in, in, in our aid. I had one particularly impressive ambassador tell me that, uh, that our economic assistance ought to be about one thing, and that is promoting U.S. companies' growth in these countries, and that's it. Nothing else. That our focus ought to be making sure that uh, U.S. economic interest are dealt with, that we're spurring that on, and, and that's what our economic assistance, that's what our foreign aid ought to be mostly about, other than dealing with the health issues that I think we've been so in fact, so effective in dealing with. I'd just like for you to respond, if I could. Yeah. I would disagree. Uh, I think that would be uh, a detriment to overall governance in countries if we were saying, basically, we want uh, our aid to be rigged, and we want the system to be rigged in favor of our companies. Uh, that goes to old system, and, and that's, that's an, a type of capitalism which you find in many developing countries, mm. where a certain number of com companies have privileged relations with government, they are monopolistic or, or favored, uh, and they make a lot of money. Uh, not, but not unlike, really, uh, much of what China does, is that not, correct? Not um, yeah. in, in many ways. So I think we are better off in the long term promoting an enabling environment that allows countries to grow, and then I believe we should challenge our companies to go in and participate and take the necessary risks, invest, and uh, and prosper in those countries. I think American companies, in many cases, have not been aggressive enough in investing in the developing world, even when there are legitimate economic opportunities. Uh, I think this would be a signal to them that the U.S. government will take care of them. Instead, we should be signaling to the recipient countries, create a vibrant uh, environment, and then we believe that our companies on level playing field will compete and do well. I think that would be better for all concerned. Dr. Moss. I think that would be a recipe for our aid program degenerating into, uh, into exactly what people worry about, which is, a, which is a, a program of corporate welfare. I think it's absolutely uh, antithetical to what our foreign aid program should be about, which is pursuing our national security, our development, our economic interests abroad. 
Uh, I do think there's a role for the U.S. government in ensuring that American companies have a fair playing field. Uh, absolutely, that seems perfectly legitimate. But using that um, as, a, as a hammer for mercantilism, I think, is uh, is terrible idea. Ms. Mandible. No, I agree, and I think that in addition to being antithetical to a lot of our goals, um, it's not terribly practical as a way to actually work forward in that American companies are tremendously different one from another. And so what's particularly effective for this company to be able to move into a country is not necessarily the thing that facilitates this, this other company's ability to move forward. Um, and if you look at the things that across the board allow American companies as a whole to move into a, a country, they are the enabling environment, they are the conditions that promote economic growth, and they are free and fair practices. And so if that is at the core of how we're thinking about economic assistance, then we are by default actually leveling the playing field for our own companies. Mm -hmm. Dr. Moss, you mentioned something about um, us being able to provide equity at uh, OPIC. And, um, you know, we get, again, so you just, all three of you moved in a direction that I thought you would relative to to uh, U.S. economic interest only. On the other hand, um, you were talking earlier about models that China and other countries have that are very different, focused on state-owned enterprises. One of the reasons I think that TPP, from a strategic standpoint, has been uh, pursued, and that is to take advantage of those countries that are being pushed in our direction. Um, in particular uh, in Southeast Asia that where China is dominant with their state-owned enterprise model and without us providing some way, whether it's bilateral agreements, if TPP is not what's going to be enacted, but in some way capturing that and dealing with them in a way that creates a more free enterprise-oriented system. But you, you mentioned OPIC uh, having the ability to do equity. So, you know, for many Americans that sort of brings back Solyndra. <laughs> You know, government, uh, I mean, it's not, not a path I'm particularly interested in going down where government officials are making decisions uh, about equity and which companies they're going to be in, investing in. And I wonder how, from your perspective, we might square that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's an excellent question, and it is definitely a concern that would get to the structure of how, how the equity would work within OPEC. You do not want civil servants making... Uh, making uh, uh, decisions about about what the US government will have a, a chunk of a foreign private company um, but a way to get um, uh, if you if you look at the at the objectives of OPIC OPIC is a development agency its goal is to help build markets abroad and to try to create economic opportunity Un, it is not like the export import bank whose goal is US jobs and US exports so OPIC is not trying to get uh, American companies into new markets. It's trying to build those opportunities. And if we hold OPIC to account, uh, then there's, and that is their mandate, it's not changed to become mercantilist. I don't think that those concerns about, about equity positions within a limited capacity should, should really hold. Another way to get rid of that concern would be um, would be to remove uh, a lot, some of the restrictions that are currently on OPIC for a U.S. nexus. If we loosen some of those constraints uh, on uh, OPIC investments, then the concern about potential corporate welfare or the concern about long-term U.S. ownership can, can disappear. Any other observations? We're going to close the meeting out now. Is there anything that you felt um, 
needed to be addressed that wasn't in the hearing. We uh, thank you all, thank all of you for being here and thank you for your testimony. Uh, there'll, there'll be numbers of written questions that likely will come in. We'll close the record as of the close of business on Monday, but if you in, in a fairly prompt manner could respond to those, it'd be much appreciated. And we thank uh, all three of you for what you've done to advance our nation's interest and for being here today and helping us. And uh, with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you.